ask that as we open your word that we would that we would hear your words as the words of God for what they really are and that they would do their work in us as your spirit unfolds their truthfulness uh, shines a light on not only your glory but ourselves and teaches us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So accomplish your good work in us through your word, by your spirit. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it was interesting that last week when Ted opened up for us the book of Philippians, that one of the main points there was fitting right in. I don't know if you did that on purpose. Uh, He did. Uh, Of course, everything is planned and wise and, uh, you know, a mark of maturity. Uh, But anyway, it worked out that his point of the universality of the church was fitting right into what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, namely uh, the unity that we share as the people of God. It is a unity that's patterned after the divine unity of the relationship between the Father and the Son, particularly, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit ultimately. And it is a unity that we share as the people of God that is, by God's own design, a means of our witness to the world. It is how the world looks at us and sees the redemption that we have in Christ and our own relationship with Christ. And that, again, is manifest in how we relate to one another and how we speak to one another, how we act towards one another, how we feel towards one another, how we treat one another in the whole totality of our lives live together under the banner of Christ. And so the idea of unity, the unity of the people of God, is essential to what it means to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, just as a side note, that uh, that's something that's been lost really kind of in our westernized Christianity with the great doctrine of justification by faith. Sometimes the way way that that has been taken is to think of salvation in almost completely as individuals not as a corporate people of God. Therefore, salvation is about me getting saved, about me having my sins forgiven, about me going to heaven, and me, 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 which those are all wonderful truths. And of course, there are individual personal realities to salvation. We must each repent. We must each believe. We each individually receive the benefits of Christ. But salvation pictured in the very act of baptism, is actually being incorporated into the people of God, into the one people of God. And it is one of the most precious truths of our reconciliation to the Father through Christ. So it's worth taking some time to consider. And certainly it's something that all of us can do uh, better at. In other words, pursuing this unity. Now, there's two simple general categories that I've broken this up into. One is the theology of unity, and namely, that's what we looked at in John. We'll look at that even again in Ephesians 4, which is where we'll be uh, this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But this section is next is going to focus primarily on the practice of unity. In other words, how does that unity, how does the reality of our spiritual unity work itself out among us as the people of God? And of course, there's a lot that could be said still about the theology of unity, and there's a lot more that could be said about the practice of unity than we will say, but this is more meant to just give us an overview, to encourage us and spur us on to uh, a greater practice of unity in our own lives here and today. Well, we're going to look primarily this week and next week then at the book of Ephesians, and particularly Ephesians chapter 4. And while we'll look at other parts of Ephesians, we're going to focus primarily on verses 1 through 6, where Paul addresses this issue very distinctly, very specifically, very concisely uh, for us. But before we get to chapter 4, let me do just a brief run through the book of Ephesians. Not so much going through Paul's argument, but just looking at how Paul has been building up this very idea and this very reality of unity in relation to us as the people of God. He begins at the very beginning of this letter in verse 3, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption 
as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, at least just highlighting the aspect of unity, he marks that what we share as the one people of God stretches back far beyond the actual accomplishment of redemption to the eternal purposes of God in creation. The very purpose of God in creation was ultimately that he would redeem a people out of it, a fallen people, bring them into union with his son as adopted sons and daughters, and then place them in new eternal bodies on a new heavens and a new earth to be with him forever. This unity here, as is a major theme in all of Scripture, but particularly in the book of Ephesians, is in him. In other words, it is in Christ. It is in a particular kind of unity that we share with the Son. That is the foundation of our unity. And here he gives it this wonderful biblical theme of adoption. In other words, he places our unity into the very context of the metaphor of a family, of a family. Of course, God has revealed himself in familial terms, hasn't he? As a father and as a son. It's the idea of family. And so it is with us who are brought into the family of God. We are, even using the words of Jesus, not merely individuals together gathered in the same place, but we are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. All of the Father together sharing in this reality of being in the family of God. And it evokes the imagery, even as we looked briefly in John chapter 17, of sharing then in the very love of the Father for the Son. In other words, we've been engrafted in through Christ and by the Spirit into this divine and eternal love that has always been a part of God's nature. In verses 22 through 23 of chapter 1, he describes this unity under the imagery of the church as Christ's body. He says in verse 22, And he, being the Father here, put all things in subjection under his, that is Christ, feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Filled by Christ's Spirit, who is also the Spirit of God, being in union with him, being adopted into his family. The church then here is described through this imagery of body as essentially being the physical manifestation of Christ's own life here on earth. And dwelled by his spirit, sharing in his life, we are his body. We are his body. Let me just, you don't have to turn there, let me just briefly... Mention one other verse to you where Paul makes this uh, quite plain, and that's in Galatians chapter 4. Go the right direction here. He says in verse 4, just listen to this, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Picturing there both, again, this family metaphor of being in the family of God, sharing in the very spirit of Christ, the spirit of sonship. That is descriptive then of our unity and and reflects what Paul's saying here in that we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He pictures this unity in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, in the context of our redemption in Christ. He says, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, the idea here is that our unity is bound up in this union with Christ. We are with Him. We are in Him. We are His body. We are adopted in Him, in the Son. So Christ is the very center of our unity, the very grounds of our unity. Everything related to our unity is centered on the person of Christ and our redemption in Him. He mentions this unity again in chapters 11, in verses 11 through 22 
of chapter 2. I won't read all of that, but in some parts of it, he says here in verse 11, Remember that you, formerly the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, performed in hands by the flesh, human hands, He says, remember that you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from all of the promises, all of the grace, all of the hope that the nation of Israel had because of the promises given to her. But he says in verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the divining wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in, him, that in himself he might make them two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So here is this glorious picture of God's eternal purpose To create for himself a one people, one new man. That that could even be, and it is translated by some, a new humanity. Who are together the very body of Christ indwelled by his spirit. Brought near to God as children. We are one. We are one. That is God's eternal purpose. And the great and magnificent reality here is that. No longer is there the distinction of the Jews by the ordinances given to them by God, the commands given to them by God. Here mentioned circumcision, one of the chief signs, the chief sign of Jewishness being circumcised. Here he says, no longer is that the mark, but it is this reality of being in relationship with Christ. And so Paul earlier in Galatians, said that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's no free nor slave, male nor female, and so on. We are all one in Christ, one in Christ. Again, as I've mentioned before, that verse is wrongly used, Galatians 3.28, to mean there's no longer distinctions in roles. In other words, there's no longer a distinction between male and female in the specific roles of headship and authority and submission. That's not what Paul is saying. He's simply saying this, that every person, no matter who you are, have equal access to God through Christ. There is no distinction. As a matter of fact, he gives us an even more wonderful picture here in verse 17 of Ephesians 2. Or look at verse 18. He says, For through him, that is through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In one spirit to the Father, we have free access through Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. One body, one household, One new man or one humanity, adopted children of God in the Son, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, as in the Old Testament, the presence of God was uniquely manifested in the temple. You remember the glory that filled the tabernacle at first in the wilderness, constructed by Moses. Then there was the glory that filled the temple, Solomon's temple, It was a unique place of God. When they were to pray, they prayed towards the temple, towards Jerusalem, as symbolically of where God's presence dwelled uniquely among his people. Now he says, no longer are there those things. And and really, that's hard for us to imagine. I'm not figure this, that for over, or for roughly 1,500 years before the coming of Christ, that was how God manifested his presence. Those were the people of God. And now in one fell swoop with the coming of Christ, God says, all of that is done away with. You, us, here in this room, being a part of this, are the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of the Spirit of God. We have access equally to God Not through a human priesthood, but through Christ who is our high priest. 
He alone is our mediator. We as children equally together have this connection with Him. In 3.15, as we're moving towards chapter 4, well, actually, even up before we get to verse 15, He mentions this again, this idea of being together as the one body, the one people of God, Jew and Gentile. That means basically just all humanity. All humanity. He says... In verse 5, in generations it was not made known to the sons of men. Now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then he says in verse 10 uh, that this is the mystery that God has revealed. It was hidden. Now it has been revealed with the appearing of Christ. And he says it's so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Actually, I can remember in seminary class of uh, hearing, it was just we were reading and talking about this passage. And for the first time, it just hit me in a way that was uh, obviously memorable, this reality of the significance of the church. Particularly here in verse 10, the church being that by God's plan, his display of his wisdom before all of the angelic realm. Not only here on earth, but all of the angels are meant to look at the glory of this new humanity, this one new man in Christ and to marvel at the wisdom of God. He says that the wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance, verse 11, with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, that was God's plan. It was ultimately even his intention in creating is that he would create this new humanity in his Son. And then again, as I mentioned, place us on a new heavens and a new earth in resurrected bodies. So this is glorious. But then he says in verse 15, that it's for this reason that he bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. That phrase, every family, by some is translated whole family, but it's probably better left as every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, Again, we're not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but just to make you aware that this could be taken in a couple of different ways. Uh, He he could be referring to the Father here or to to every family as God's role as Father as the creator of all things and every family being all of humanity. And that way he would be indicating that God is, in one sense, uh, the Father of all men. Of course, wrong, liberal... uh, Tracts of theology would take that to mean that God is equally the father of all men, the universal fatherhood of God. Paul certainly doesn't mean that. That's clear throughout Scripture. He tells those who are unregenerate, you're of your father, the devil. That's not what he means here. But one way to take this is that God is father of all. He is creator of all. And everyone derives their existence and their reality and their name from him. And that's one possible way to take it. And that's how many commentators take it. However, Paul's stress on God as not only creator, but particularly as father of those whom he's brought into union with his son, I think is the primary emphasis here of Paul. Is that he's saying here, particularly he's referring to the father, while it includes certainly his universal role as creator, as ruler over his creation, but particularly him as the father of his people. The one whom Paul knows as father in Christ. The one whom Paul is in spiritual fellowship and relationship with and has access to by the Spirit as all of us so that we would bow our knees and call him as Father, not merely as Father of all creation, but our Father in Christ. The one in whom we are the most intimate relationship with the Son. I think that fits better the idea here. And every family would be every family then who is in Christ. But either way is possible here, but that's... The emphasis that I think that Paul means. So Paul prays that we as the body and the temple and the dwelling of God by the Spirit through our union with Christ would know the fullness of his love for us in Christ. And that's how he ends chapter 3. He says that we would know in verse 19 
the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has really established then this strong foundation of this eternal purpose of God. The manifold witness of God that is now revealed before all men, but particularly he mentions before all of the angelic world, that there is this new humanity, this one people, this body of Christ, these sons and daughters brought into nearness with him, the very people in whom his presence resides by the Spirit among the earth, men and on earth, and will with him forever and eternity. And then after establishing all that, he says in verse 4, Therefore, therefore, because of these realities, because those things are true, because of these great things that God has done, because of the significance of what it means to be in Christ, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and who is in all. Do you notice a theme? What does he repeat? One, one. One, I think it's seven times in these few verses he mentions we're one. The idea here is the unity, the oneness that we share as the people of God, again, in union with his Son. And Paul's most immediate concern upon laying out this foundation is that not only we would grasp that reality, that our eyes would be enlightened to grasp all of that, But his immediate concern then is that we would live consistent with that reality. That we would live as the people of God consistent with the reality of our unity. As a matter of fact, at the heart of all of this is verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is really the central point that Paul has been moving towards and emphasizing That we are one. We have a unity in the Spirit. Our corporate gathering, our lives together should reflect this fellowship that we have together as the family of God. As the family of God. Now let's just look at that. I want to actually do things a bit out of order here. I want to look first at verse 4 through 6 and just... And see first this, this emphasis that he places on the unity and then swing back around at the end and go back to verses uh, chapter 2 primarily. Or excuse me, uh, chapter 4 verse 2 to see how it is that we are to live then to preserve this unity. But look first how he describes this unity in verse 4. We already mentioned this but he says there is one body. One body. Again he already mentioned that back in chapter 1 verses 2 through 23. This one body is also the church. It consists of every person in Christ, ultimately past, present, and future. Although the full reality of this body, this oneness, will not be known in all that God has intended it to be until the future when we are all together in the words of Paul to the Philippians, when we are conformed to his body. In the words of John in chapter 3, when we are conformed to Christ and we match him fully and we see him as he is, that will be the ultimate expression of it. He says in verse 13 that the very working of the Spirit of God is towards that end. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It means then that the ultimate thing that God is working towards and the ultimate expression of the full glory of redemption will be that one singular together humanity united to his son expressed then in its fullness ultimately 
in perfect holiness and righteousness, reflecting his glory forever, forever. This is amazing, amazing truths, and it is to be, it is the, the way that we then are to think about our existence together as the church. Now, Paul here then is, of course, is addressing a particular group. But the reality is, is that, again, the body of Christ, that the church of Christ is not limited ever to one location. It is ultimately everybody who is united to Christ by the Spirit. That is the body of Christ. It has a particular expression, it does, in terms of the body of Christ gathered in particular localities, but no one congregation is the full expression of the body of Christ. It is an expression of the body of Christ. It is an expression of the union. But in fact, it is a union that we share with every Christian. Every Christian. And again, as I mentioned before, we are then as Christians, we are as the church, a reflection. We are the physical manifestation of Christ's own life here on earth. Let me just emphasize that point in just a couple of verses. Paul, when he was confronted, if you remember when he was on the road to Damascus, he was traveling around, he was persecuting Christians, he was dragging off women and children and men because of their testimony of Christ. And the risen Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, appears to him and he stops him with this blinding light. And he says to him in Acts 9-4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Although that would have been true, of course, as well. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, the afflictions that you bring on those who bear my life, my name, who have my spirit, is afflicting me. Paul says the same thing, but in a reverse order, in Colossians 1.24. He could say in his suffering for the gospel... In my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his, that is Christ's body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not talking about, as Roman Catholic theologians would want to use that verse, as filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ and the idea of the atonement not being complete, that there is still more to suffer, that we as the church must suffer. But Paul is simply saying here that in his faithfulness, his identification with Christ and his faithfulness in his ministry of proclaiming Christ and serving Christ's body, the afflictions that he bears himself and in his own body is the afflictions that are meant for Christ. If the world hated you, the world will hate me. But the point I just want to emphasize here is this, that there is this intimate union and connection and identification that Christ has with his people here under the metaphor of the body. So we are one body. We are the body of Christ filled with his spirit. And that's his next point. We are one body and one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit of God. Reflecting what he said in chapter 2. Let me just read this. You're familiar with this. Back in chapter 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You are the temple of God. We are the spirit indwelt people of God. And by that spirit, we have the very life of God within us that makes us the one people of God, a new humanity, a new humanity. And he says, We are one body, we are one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One hope. Every one of us in Christ shares the same hope. What does that mean? This is, this is really a, a very wonderful statement. And, and something that highlights, I think, in a much more intimate way, at least as I was going through this, the unity that we share, the oneness that we share together. What, what does that mean? Because when we seek, speak of one hope of our calling, there's an objective sense to that, of course, in fact, that we have a hope based on the work that God has accomplished in Christ. It's a hope that is certain because of the resurrection of Christ, real events that we believe in. But hope speaks of something more than that. Hope speaks of internal realities, doesn't it? 
Hope is what we need as the people of God. Hope is that inside part of us that relies on the promises of God that gives us courage in affliction, that gives us courage in trials, that helps us to know that whatever is sacrificed here ultimately has a reward, it has an end, it has a purpose, that it's not without purpose, that it that we have a same hope. This is deeply, deeply intimate. We share together then as the people of God the hope of the resurrection. A common hope for the coming kingdom. A common hope for the new heaven and the new earth. That means then even more. It means that internally in the deepest part of our soul. That deepest, deepest secret part of who we are. That only we and the Lord know of. We actually have the same longings. We can identify with each other perfectly because God has redeemed us and placed those longings within us through Christ and by His Spirit. That means that the deepest part of who we are, not like the confusion that is in the world, we together have identity there. We have a unity there. We both want the same things. That means that ultimately we have the same joys We have the same encouragements in trial and in loss because they come from one spirit who indwells us. We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another in this body. And as members of this body, members of one another, those who share the same Father, the same hope, the same future, the same promises, the same Lord, the same salvation, our lives at the deepest possible level are one and united. That's glorious. I think many of us could say, or I could, and I know that I speak for probably everybody in this room, that one of the most memorable experiences of first being saved was this automatic closeness of relationship that I felt with another Christian. I think many of you would would say that you felt that. I mean, it was a very new experience. But you would meet someone for the first time who was a Christian and obvious and immediately would feel as close or closer to them in some cases than you would your own family members, particularly those who are outside of Christ. There was something you shared and what we share together with one another is life. We share hope. We share the same calling. The most intimate part of who we are is something that we share together. And that means that our encouragements, our conversations, our counsel, our fellowship should reflect this reality. And Paul actually emphasizes that same thing in Philippians 2. Don't turn there. But he says he encourages those who are the body of Christ to be then of the same mind. To be maintaining the same love. United in spirit. And that's not the Holy Spirit there. But it really has the idea, the term of being harmonious of soul. It's translated united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That means the way that we view the world together, the things that we want from the world and the things that we want from eternity, we share together. And we should pursue being of the same mind, the same heart, the same love. It means that we're not each pursuing our own interest and agenda and goals, but seeking together to present ourselves and one another holy and blameless before the Lord, to strengthen and encourage and support one another as the body of Christ. We are one body. We share one spirit. We have one calling, one hope of our calling. And he says in verse 5, we have one Lord, one Lord who is head over all of creation and Lord of the church. We have one master that we all submit to together. We don't have a variety of masters. We don't have a variety of authorities in our life. We all have the same authority. We have the same master. We have the same Lord. We have the same voice that we hear that commands and leads and guides and comforts and teaches us the voice of Christ through his word. We have this shared together. And it's, again, something that's ultimately shown in love. The chief order of our Lord and of our master and of our king and our God is this, as he said to his disciples in John 15, this I command you, that you love one another. That's his command. We submit to his authority. What is the ultimate submission to his authority? Well, according to John, even right there, it is that we love one another as a reflection of our love for God. 
In 1 John 5, I just, I just want to mention this before we, I move on. But he says this. Well, he actually begins it in chapter 4. He says, if someone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. Uh, the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him, our Lord, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That means as we, just to put, tag that with what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 4, that as we submit to the authority of Christ's lordship in our life, as we submit to the authority of his word, the primary way that we demonstrate that is that we love one another as he has loved us. And again, that's going to be something he builds to again later. A constant theme of scripture that we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbors ourselves. Here then there is one Lord that we submit to, one Lord in whom we trust, one word that we submit to, one knowledge of God together that we are growing towards through His Word. And there He emphasizes that with one faith. There's one Lord to whom we submit. There's one faith that we hold. And here faith is referring not so much to the subjective sense of our faith and our trust in Him. But it is the idea of our one faith, our one body of truth, the doctrine that we hold to, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, everything that He has revealed to us in His Word. Again, the Lord speaks, and He speaks to us in His written Word. And we, together as the people of God, yield to Him by faith, but Here it is our mutual trust in Christ as revealed in Scripture. Again, think of the intimate nature of this kind of unity that we share. It means then that we all yield to the same truth. We rejoice in the same knowledge of God. We yield to the same commands. We have the same light that illumines our darkness. We have the same truth that leads us in paths of righteousness. It means internally... And again, in the deepest part of who we are as regenerate new humanity united to Christ, that we all are holding on to the same truths as our hope. We're all following the same Lord. We're all believing the same things. And then he moves on. He says there's one baptism. Each person upon salvation is baptized into the Holy Spirit. Each person upon salvation, according to the promise of God, of Christ in Acts 1.5, is baptized by the coming of the Spirit. It means simply this, that we are by the Spirit's doing immersed into the life of Christ with every attendant blessing and holy reality of that union. And some take baptism here to mean that, the spiritual baptism that we all undergo. However, that's probably not the baptism that Paul is speaking of here. I think here he's referring to water baptism. To water baptism, that outward profession of faith in Christ, demonstrated in our being immersed in water as a picture of our union with Christ, our commitment to Him, our sharing in His life, and our participation in the one people of God. As an ordinance, in fact, that is what baptism signifies. That we are, it is the initiatory act that shows us to be a part, not only of Christ and His redemption, but also a part of His people. It's one baptism, one baptism. It is a commanded as an expression of obedient faith in an identification with Christ, a public initiation into the people of God in Christ. It is us together identifying with Christ as the people of God in full trust and total allegiance of faith to follow Him together, to love Him together, to hope in Him together, to serve one another together under the authority of our king, to listen to his word together as the one people of God. And the idea here is likely this. You've all given public testimony to Christ as Lord, demonstrated your faith in the revelation of him, publicly identified with him as the one people of God. You've given witness to faith in this one God being part of the one people. Now so live accordingly. So live accordingly. But then he gives one more glorious picture of this unity that we share. And he says, it's one God and Father of all who is over all 
and through all and in all. And Paul is likely here reflecting the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Emphasizing that the God of Israel is alone God. He is alone creator of all. He alone is the God who has redeemed Israel. He is to be loved and he is to be served preeminently above all other things in this world. And which is to be manifest then in an obedient life that flows out of affections and trust for God. That's the idea of the Shema. In the New Testament, however, the oneness of God was revealed more clearly to encompass three persons in eternal relationship together as one God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And again, this actually connects with his previous statement, one baptism. How are we baptized? Jesus said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. We are baptized into the one name of God who is three, three persons. Now this statement could be fairly seen, reasonably seen, again, as either an expression of God as the Father of all men, as creator, as supreme ruler and king over the universe, as supreme potentate, as you will, master over all that he has made, Or it could refer specifically to the Father in terms of his relationship to believers. I I mean, it could go either way. I think Paul probably means both ideas to be seen here. Both are presented even equally in the book of of, uh, Ephesians as it is in the New Testament. Certainly the idea of God in that way as just ruler over all men is... Reflected in another place, listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. That would be God as just the Father who is the ruler and creator of all things. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, again, I think the emphasis, though including that, probably falls on the Father as the Father of his people. Those whom he has brought near in Christ. Those whom he has entered into eternal relationship with his Father, those, him before whom we bow our knees as Father and pray to, him who has given us his Son, him who is in us by the Spirit. Probably reflecting even there, I would hold, that in us and in all, to be reflected even again of what John said, we looked at that briefly in John chapter 14, where he says that, when we're walking in obedient faith to the Lord, that the Father and the Son, they come and they make their abode in us in the most intimate kind of fellowship. Even as Jesus says, I in you. And Jesus himself being in the Father and through Christ, then they both, we reside in God, as it were, in Christ. In either case, however, here, Paul's emphasis is this in all of those statements. It is the unity that we share together as the people of God. There's only one God who's creator and ruler over all things. We have one Father who is our spiritual Father. And the Son, one Lord whom we serve in obedient love. One Spirit who unites us to Christ. One baptism through which we proclaim our unity with Christ. To one, one, one body that we comprise as the people of God. One hope towards which we press. One longing to be with Him and to be fully conformed to His image. It's a glorious unity. But let me swing back around now and go to the first part of the verse. How then are we to maintain this unity? How is this unity to reflect itself in the way we actually live together? Because while this unity is something that God accomplishes, while this unity is a reality that will, by God's doing, ultimately find its fullest expression because of His purposes in the new heavens and the new earth and in the resurrection... The reality of it is, is that we can break and destroy the manifestation and the showing of this unity here on earth. Even though this unity exists, it is a spiritual reality. We did not create it. God created it. Though it is a unity that finds its first and most essential reality internally, what we share by the Spirit in our union with Christ, it is a unity that can be broken in terms of our actual relationships with one another. As a matter of fact, one author said this, the unity and peace it enjoys, meaning the church, the body of Christ, is a precious gift from the Holy Spirit that can be easily wrecked 
the individual members of the church need to work hard at preserving this unity. And Paul brings that up in verse 1. He says, I implore you to walk, that is, live consistently in a manner worthy of the gospel, to which in the calling with which you have been called. He says in verse 3, be diligent to preserve this unity. It requires diligent. It requires effort. It requires desire. It requires intentionality. It requires self-sacrificing effort. Even though God creates this unity, we can break it in terms of our actual demonstration of it. And we have to work hard to preserve it. We are called to be diligent to preserve this unity. How do we preserve this unity of the Spirit? What is the character of this diligent effort to preserve this unity? Well, it's not something external. We've already touched that. That's the idea of ecumenism. Is that this unity is given its total emphasis on an external unity. And therefore, truth is relegated to a second tier level of importance. If not, at least in what is said, at least in what is practiced. That is not the kind of unity that he's looking for. Merely an external unity. It is a unity that has to be consistent with the spiritual realities of union with Christ. In other words, consistent with truth. Consistent with the right gospel. Consistent with an obedient heart to the revealed word of God. Consistent to hold to a doctrine together as revealed in scripture. That is the idea of one faith. It is a unity that has to be externally consistent with the spiritual realities in which it is grounded. Namely in Christ who is the way and the truth and the life and who has spoken to us in his word. Now, again though, there is the danger of this unity being broken because within the unity of the church there is also diversity. There's diversity of background, there's diversity of culture, diversity of spiritual maturity, diversity of knowledge. Even though we all are pursuing the same truth. Not everybody is at the same place in that pursuit of truth, right? There's disagreements. This kind of diversity then is both the beauty of our unity, in other words, that our unity preserves strong and is demonstrated in spite of all of those differences, those things that usually divide, but it also provides the fodder for the potentiality of that unity being broken. Therefore, Because our unity is first an inward unity produced by the Spirit through union with Christ. We preserve it, we keep it, and the strength of this unity is our being filled with the Spirit. And that's really what he pictures there in verse 2. How do we preserve it? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. How do we take and display this great realities of redemption? It's to treat one another with the character of humility and gentleness. Let's just look at this, beginning to look at this now as we come into the table, and we'll wrap all of this up next week. But notice the first thing, humility. When we walk together, when we live together with a hard attitude of humility, in tandem with holiness, this is the crown virtue of the Christian. While pride is the greatest hindrance to true relationship, to true unity, humility is its greatest bond. And humility cannot be separated from the reality of love. It's a humility that comes from a right understanding of who we are, what our redemption has entailed. In other words, when we truly understand redemption, that is going to be first displayed through humility, the humility that recognizes that we are of ourselves dead in sin. The humility that realizes that the condition out of which we saved was a condition of condemnation, of complete guilt, of complete helplessness, of complete darkness. And therefore our redemption in Christ was a complete work of God, completely flowing out of his heart of love that he determined to display on us. And to get that produces a natural kind of humility, a humility that realizes that what I am, I had nothing to do with outside of responding in in faith to his work of redemption. And even that response of faith was itself a gift of God, a gift that he determined to give to you and to me before the foundation of the world. 
So in other words, we have nothing when we come together in which to boast as coming from ourselves, right? What have you received? What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast? Why do you act as if you have not received it? It's a humility that comes from walking constantly in the light of the truth of God. In other words, when we are constantly before the light of the truth of God, His character revealed to us, we constantly see what He is and what we are not. What we're striving towards. That's why confession of sin is a consistent part of this humility. Because we constantly see that we fall short of what the ideal is, of what Christ is, of what we will one day know but we don't know here. It's a kind of humility then that is not self-seeking, but is others seeking. Indeed, humility is the very mark of being in the kingdom of God. Jesus said that in the Beatitudes. We won't go through all of that. Being poor in spirit. That's the very measure of being in the kingdom of God. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a basic principle of being in the kingdom of God. In other words... No one can even be a part of this body. No one can be in the kingdom of God until they first have been brought low to despair of themselves and to see all of their hope and their trust in Christ, what God has provided. If anybody on the face of this planet should be humble, it is the people of God. It is the people of God. For we alone have understood by the Spirit's work the deep reality of our fallen condition and the grace that's been shown to us in Christ. What does that look like? It looks like then this, that we are a people whose fellowship is marked by denying ourselves, by denying ourselves, walking in a way that puts ourselves to the side that we might pursue unity in the service of one another. Now, you've heard this many times, but I want to I read it. What does that actually look like then to walk with all humility? All humility. Notice he doesn't say most humility. Try really hard to be humble. Be humble in certain parts. In other words, humility is to be an all-encompassing characteristic of our lives as Christians. At every single part, every relationship we have, every desire we have, every capacity of service that we have is to be marked by this humility. Humility. And humility is marked by denying self. Let me read this to you. It's an anonymous poem. It's so helpful. We probably should just read it every week we gather. That might be helpful too. But let me, let me read this. It says this. When you are, what does that look like? Now, when I read this, don't just listen to the words. Think about your relationships within the church. Think about as I read this and use this as sort of a benchmark of your relationships in your home with your children, your relationships in the workplace, your relationships with one another in the church. Don't just think of it as an outside like, wait, that's really neat. Apply it to yourself, as I do mine. And believe me, I have much to repent of every time that I I read this. But let me read this. What does that look like in our relationships? It looks like this. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with the insult of oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. Ouch. When When you do... When you do good, but evil is spoken of you, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment, that is clothing, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation, or to record your own good works, or itch, you know, internally just waiting for that commendation when you can, tr- when you can truly uh, love to be unknown. When you're fine with obscurity. When you're fine with not being the center of attention and not being the admiration of all around. That's dying to self. That means that you can serve in the church and it can go unnoticed. 
Or even you can do something that you know was a result of your ministry and somebody else gets the credit. How about that? And you're okay with that. You don't really care. That happens all the time uh, in ministry anyway. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. That's the kind of humility that marks, that preserves unity. One more. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, one that you view as under you, and you can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. That's the kind of humility then in relationship that preserves the unity that we have in Christ. It is totally without a self agenda, but with the agenda of Christ. It has a right view of self before the sovereign hand of God and is one redeemed. It looks a lot like Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of man, of humanity, even sinful humanity. And he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The opposite of this, of course, is pride. Pride starts with self and works out from that vantage point, rather than starting from Christ in service to others. In other words, in the words of uh, Stuart Scott, we've all read his book, The Exemplary Husband, he helpfully says this, pride says this, humility says all things are from him, through him, and to him, right? That's the end of Romans 11. Pride says this, all things are from me, through me, and to me, and to me be the glory. People exist primarily to serve my purposes rather than for me to serve them to the glory of Christ. Indeed, it even says that God exists primarily for my blessing, my well-being, and my happiness. Let me just read this other side and then we're going to move into the Lord's table. What does this pride look like? Let me give you... And I'm, he had 30 lists. He had a list of 30. I won't read them all. But let me, I, could, I chose from some of them. What does pride look like? What are the kind of things that kill this unity? What are the kind of things that destroy this unity, that don't preserve this unity? It's this. Complaining against or, against the, or reacting against the judgment of God with discontent. A lack of gratitude in general. Anger. Having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, and abilities. Focusing on your own importance, gifts, and abilities. Perfectionism. Talking too much. Talking too much about yourself. Seeking independence or control. Being consumed with what others think. Being devastated or angered by criticism. Being unteachable. Being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. A lack of service. A lack of compassion. Being defensive or blame-shifting. A lack of admitting when you are wrong. A lack of asking forgiveness. Resisting authority or being disrespectful. Minimizing your own sin and shortcomings. Maximizing others' sins or shortcomings. Being impatient or irritable with others. Being jealous or envious. Using others. Being deceitful by covering up sins, faults, and mistakes. Using attention-grabbing tactics. And not having close relationships. Those are the things that destroy the unity and are the very opposite of what he calls for here, the humility that is going to be attended with gentleness and with patience. Indeed, these are precisely the opposite of the humility and Christ-like character and is a sure recipe for disunity. But where there is humility, and we'll have to stop there, where there is humility, where there is a right understanding of the gospel, where there is the life that lives honestly under the authority and the light of Scripture, then there is unity. And there is a glorious unity that we share and the glorious blessings of that unity that we share together both in relationships and in the enjoyment of our relationship with God. And it is a unity that is pictured here in the table. It's a unity that's pictured in this table, our unity with Christ participation in his life, and a sharing of that life together. So as the men come forward, I'm going to pray, and Kathleen's going to play.
say that two times real fast. And then let's prepare our hearts to come to this table. Remember that the table is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. The table is for those who are truly Christians who can hear this and identify with it at some level. It's for obedient Christians as well. While none of us comes perfectly, that's the great glory of forgiveness and grace that's pictured in the table. But if there is unrepentant sin, then it is uh, an opportunity for you to just let it pass and get and make sure that you first repair that need for reconciliation or repentance in whatever way that needs to take place. Let me pray. Father, I pray now as we take your table together that you would prepare our hearts, my heart and the heart of everyone here, to take with sincerity of faith that we, in taking this table and proclaiming you to the world, delighting in you together, that we would also gladly be submitting to you with our lives and to live in a way that is consistent with what we share together in the Spirit through our union with you. Work those things in us for your everlasting glory. In your name, Jesus, amen.